0: We're in John chapter 2, and if you were with us last week as we were finishing up chapter 1, you remember that uh, we focused in on Jesus changing Peter's name, right? Peter, this guy who is notoriously impulsive and unreliable, about as stable as water, uh, naturally speaking, Jesus changes this guy's name to rock, right? Anything other than what he actually was naturally, And we saw the reason for that is because Jesus sees you and me as who we are and will be in Christ, not as who we are naturally in and of ourselves. Such a beautiful picture. And, you know, in my study this week, I was reading in Warren Wiersbe, and he told a story about a coal miner, and uh, this guy was known as the town drunk, you know, uh, just jump from job to job and he frequently you know he get fired from his job and he get rehired and, you know and all, all that stuff um he was an alcoholic you know and and just a horrible father, horrible husband and this guy got radically saved and it changed his life and maybe you guys have experienced where you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior and God begins to change you as he promises to do and what happens is that you got people who remember who you used to be, right? And that's all that you'll ever be to them. And so they're skeptics, right? Anybody ever experienced that? I, I know I went through that at the fire department. When I first went there, I wasn't, I wasn't really walking with the Lord. And, uh, and shortly after coming on the, on the, 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 the department, I, I got radically uh, rededicated my life to the Lord. I was a backslidden Christian when I started there. And, Man, you know, it, was, it took me years to, to overcome this, this reputation that I had developed just in a few months, right? And so everybody, you know, this, this coal miner, they're all looking at him skeptically, and his, one of his co-workers said to him, come on, man, you don't believe all that Jesus stuff, right? Like, do you believe that Jesus actually turned water into wine? And this coal miner replied, yeah, I believe that, and he's still doing it today, Because he turned me from a wino into a responsible husband and father and worker. And he turned wine in my house, he turned it into furniture. He turned it into decent clothes for my kids. Uh, He turned it into, you know, shoes and food. So, yeah, God's still in the miracle business. And, uh, And, you know, here's a guy just living out a new creation in Christ. Who he is in Christ, not who he was in the world. Well, today we're going to see Jesus turn water into wine here in John chapter 2. And like that coal miner, there's a whole lot for us to absorb here. So let's just jump right in. We're going to cover the 11 verses of, uh, uh, first 11 verses of chapter 2. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Doesn't sound very warm and inviting, does it? Uh, We'll unpack that in a minute. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Uh, Always good advice where Jesus is concerned. And now there were uh, set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Now, the text is going to go on to show us that they actually had the potential to contain 20 or 30 gallons apiece, but in fact, right now, they're just empty water pots. That's significant, so we'll come back to that. So Jesus, in verse 7, said to them, he's talking to the servants now, he said, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw out some Uh, Draw some out now and and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you've kept the good wine until now. And this verse 11 Uh, beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And so we start off here, it says, on the third day. And this is a subtle nod, a subtle uh, clue to Jesus manifesting his ultimate glory on the third day where he would rise from the dead. Uh, But in particular, what this is in reference to is that it's the third day since he called Nathanael to follow him and to be his uh, disciple. And, uh, and so they're there at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, right? Jesus' mother is there. Jesus and his disciples have been invited. Weddings in this day, huge deal. They could last as long as a week, huge festive occasion. And um, it was the obligation in this day and in this culture that the, the groom and his family were the ones that were responsible to throw the wedding. Now, we we have that backwards here, right? We It's a responsible of the bride's uh, family. Uh, the father of the bride typically has the responsibility to throw the wedding. I, I married off two daughters, and they both conveniently waited until I had set out on a venture of faith, left my secure job, and I planted a church and had, you know, a church of about you know, 50, 75 people, that's when they waited to get married. And then I had to pay for two weddings, right? But in this day and age, it was the groom's responsibility and his family to throw the occasion. And, you know, like I said, this was, this was a week-long thing. We're not talking about, oh, we got we to give these people dinner. No, it was a week-long event. And it was, uh, it was a huge Social faux pas if you didn't adequately provide. And not only that, it actually had legal implications, right? If, if you failed to provide, um, the social aspect of it was that this is a cloud that could hang over you and your family literally for the rest of your life, um, had horrible implications, but legally, because it was your duty, uh, well, the, the bride's family could have sued and in court, they could have, they could have sought damages. For these guys not providing adequately for this wedding feast, so big deal here, and it's a big deal to run out of wine. Now, let's talk about wine for a minute here, because, um, you know, in, the, in our American culture, we, we handle alcohol differently than in, in this culture, and um, massive abuse of alcohol in our day, and, and there was abuse of alcohol uh, in their day as well, but typically... Um, the wine, was it not only was it used in their religious ceremonies, but it was a, it was a common daily consumed commodity. Um, and what happened was you, you would have water that was often had impurities, had bacteria and so on, and they would use the wine. They would mix it with water. It was anywhere from a 1 to 3 to a 1 to 10 ratio, uh, 10 parts water, 1 part wine. And the alcohol, the fermentation, would, would make the water, uh, you know, safe so that you could drink it. And so um, y- you could get drunk on it, but you'd have to work really hard to, to get intoxicated on this. So they're, they're at this wedding feast. They've, they've run out of water. They've run out of wine. And understand these events, it's, it's a festive occasion, no doubt. I mean, if you've ever thrown a, a, a wedding uh, if you've ever uh, hosted one, you've had your kids get married off. I remember all three of my kids when they got married. It was a big deal, and it was it was exciting. It was fun. It was you bring in all your family together, and you've got this joyous event, and so it's a it's a huge festive occasion. But it was also had had great significance spiritually, and uh, and my kids' weddings no no different. I mean, you know, for my little girls. I, I prayed for them their entire life, who they would marry. I mean, from the time they were little girls, as a regular part of my prayers, I was praying for their husband. No idea who the, who this guy was going to be. I almost said clown, but I, <laughs> I knew I had no idea who was going to marry my daughter. But but you know, I, I was praying for them, right? And and so then you know you you and you're giving your daughter away to, to this guy, right? And and, and all and so. There's a religious component to it. There's a spiritual component. And and drunkenness wasn't supposed to be part of the equation, right? Just not part of the equation. And I emphasize supposed to be because just glance there at verse 10, when this, this master of the feast, you know, kind of the guy that's in charge of all the festivities, tastes the wine that Jesus makes. He goes to the groom and he says, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. And you've kept the good wine until now. And, and he's talking about the quality of the wine and what's implied here. And, and there's just no way around this. If you study this in the original language, if you read through, you know, the ocean of commentaries on this, what this guy is saying in verse 10 is that the standard practice was you, you serve the good wine uh, in the beginning, and you and you serve the, the, the wine that's not such high quality. At the end, basically because the people get intoxicated. That's what's implied in verse ten, it, and it says, uh, "And when the guests have have well drunk, the, you can't get a, around from the fact that he's saying is that is that you know when when people get intoxicated. That's when when that's when you're you're, you're serving the inferior wine." Now, that's not to say that that the intent here is that they should become intoxicated. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament warn against drunkenness. It is a sin. And and so, so it's not intended to be abused, but that's not to imply that it wasn't ever abused. Certainly it is in our day, and it was then. That sinfulness, that should not take place. And Jesus is not providing wine with the intent that people should become intoxicated. And so so we need to understand that. Now, the text says that Mary was there, and she's very concerned about the fact that they've run out of wine. Um, And uh, Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding, and the significance of this is that it's very likely that they had this role to play um, as being involved in this wedding and somehow. Either it was a family member or it was a friend. And and we get that if you've ever thrown a wedding at all, three of my kids' weddings, we had friends and we had family members that helped us, that were part of making the event happen. Sue Mahoney made uh, the wedding cake for, for for my kids, and and we had friends that did the photography and did the music and things like that. And so this is probably the case here that Mary's preoccupation with hey this is a big problem, and coming to Jesus saying hey we got a problem here, this this is a uh, indication here that that. Uh, she's involved in uh, in you know helping with with this with this event, so she comes to Jesus. She says, "Hey, we got a problem." And now Jesus, in verse four, he says, "Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour is not yet come." Now, this seems like a cold response from Jesus. It's actually not. Um, first of all, he addresses his mother as woman, and that kind of again in our culture that doesn't seem uh, appropriate, right? Um, but in this culture, according to Vines Expository Dictionary of the New Testament, the, the, the name woman was a term of respect, right? And now Jesus, when he follows it, and he says, what has this got to do with me? What does your concern have to do with me? What he's not saying here, he's not saying, hey, lady, I don't care about you. I don't care about your concerns. Tough, tough to be you. Uh, you know, uh, good luck with that, you know? That's not what he's saying here, um, He's saying politely but firmly that their mother-son relationship has changed. That's what he's saying. This is the first miracle that he's performing. This is the beginning of his ministry. You see, up until now, Jesus had served dutifully as Mary's son. Luke chapter 2 makes a point of telling us that Jesus, as a boy, was submissive to his mother and father. But here now the time has come for him to begin his ministry, to fulfill his purpose, and to submit to the Father on the Father's timetable, right? Now, the evidence seems to suggest in the New Testament that at this point, Joseph had died. Um, The last mention of Joseph in in the Gospels is in Luke chapter 2, Um, When Jesus, you know, Jesus was in Jerusalem, and they were going, they had traveled there, and uh, they had traveled three days, and all of a sudden realized Jesus wasn't with them, and they went back to get him. They found him in the temple teaching, and and all, and he said to them, "Don't you know that I need to be about my father's business, kind of thing?" But his father is mentioned there; Joseph is there, but he's not mentioned after that, and so it seems to suggest the evidence that that he has died. He's not mentioned here at the wedding, and certainly we know that at the cross, Mary was all alone because Jesus famously said to the, the Apostle John, um, hey, behold your mother, and to his, his mom, he said, behold your son. Basically, hey, take care of her, right? And so Jesus would have naturally filled the role of being the man of the house, so to speak, that his mom would have depended on him as the oldest son um, to, to, to help her out. Uh, we get this, right? Brenda and I, we, we downsized recently. We moved into a small house, you know, just that for the two of us and, and all. And um, when I negotiated the purchase of that house, it was owned by a widow, a lady who had recently been widowed. And the guy that I dealt with was her oldest son. He was the guy that managed everything uh, for his mom, as, as it should be. And, uh, and so Jesus, he was a good son. Um, he took care of his mom. We see it at the cross, as I said. And so he's not turning his back on Mary here. He's gently but firmly establishing, Mom, I'm on my father's timetable now. Now, quick application for us. Just hitting the pause button right there. And, and, uh, and I'll dial it in this way because we're at a wedding feast. Um, we, we have in our lives that, that occasion of a wedding, where, where it's, okay, we're on a new timetable now, right? And I always make it a point when, I, when I'm taking a couple through pre-marriage counseling where I will emphasize to them the Genesis account of, of the creation of Adam and Eve and God bringing Eve and, and Adam together. And Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And what I will emphasize to the couple that's getting married is that, hey, listen, you are embarking on, on a journey and your journey now, and I always I often use this boat analogy, and I won't get into all of it because there's a lot of aspects to it, but one of the things is I, I just kind of refer to marriage as a boat, and I say, you know, you, you've been on the dock of life, and everybody's welcome on the dock of life, all your friends, all your family, your parents, and, and it's just, hey, it's one big party on the dock of life but you're stepping off of that dock into the boat of your marriage. And, uh, and that requires a lot of things. But one of the things is that you're going to get in the boat and not everybody is welcome to join you in that boat. That's your boat, right? And, and so I'll emphasize to the husband and wife, look, your parents now, they, they are they're welcome to come and visit. They're welcome to give you their advice. But you have the duty and the responsibility to now become one flesh, make your own decisions. You have to have those boundaries firmly established. I'll emphasize this point to the father of the bride. I'll talk to him and I'll say, listen, you are going to be walking your daughter down the aisle. And you have to understand the significance of this moment because what you are doing is you are giving your daughter away in marriage. You're giving her away. You're going to reach the end of that aisle You're going to shake this guy's hand. You're going to place your daughter's arm in his arm. And you have now just given your daughter away to this man. He is now. You've been the head covering over over your your daughter up until this point. But now he is taking that role and that responsibility. Years ago, my oldest daughter, she was engaged to be married. And um, and I'll, I'll just tell you. What I told my wife, I pulled my wife aside and I said, this is not the guy I've been praying for her entire life. This is not the guy. And, uh, and that was proven in a number of ways. One of the ways that it was proven was that while they were engaged, uh, Brenda and Megan were scheduled to go to, uh, to a conference. It was, a, it was, it was uh, you know, specifically for women. It was a Christian conference. And this guy didn't want my daughter to go. And he said, look, look I'm... I'm the head over you, and you can't go. Now, they hadn't been married yet. I hadn't given her away to this clown, okay? And she's still my responsibility. She's under my covering. And uh, so me and that guy had a little chat, and I uh, delicately told him. I mean, okay, not so delicately. I'm here before the Lord and you. But I told him in no certain terms, look, I haven't given her away to you in marriage yet. You are not the head over this, this little girl. I am. That's the way I I see her, right? She's a little girl. Now, God answered our prayers, um, and uh, she did not marry this guy. And in, in time to come, she would marry the man that I had been praying for her entire life. And when I walked her down the aisle and I placed her arm in this guy's arm, I gave her away. And now he is her head cover. See, the, the, the thing is, we need to understand that there that there comes a time when we draw this boundary. The same thing applies, maybe not necessarily in marriage, but just to your kids in general. You raise them, and, and you train them to be morally responsible and, and biblically responsive, hopefully. And the time comes when your authority over them stops now. And they become, you know, their their own person. And so you, you give them away. So... Again, as a married couple, you're no longer under the authority of your parents. You honor them, yes, but submit to them, no, it's not part of the equation. So Jesus here, he's respectfully but firmly drawing that boundary line with his mom. He's saying, listen, what's your concern got to do with me? And then he adds this. He says, my hour has not yet come. Now, that's a huge clue. Loaded statement here, because what's probably happening here, and and admittedly, we're taking some, I'm taking some, making some assumptions here, reading between the lines, but what's probably happening here is that Mary sees this as an opportunity for Jesus to publicly reveal himself as the Messiah, and in a way, to vindicate her, because you know, she it was her conception was was an immaculate conception. It was it was uh, you know it was an, a miracle by God, right? And so, you know, there were people in the community who who didn't buy that. And so so Mary would have welcomed the opportunity to have her name cleared, have her son do some huge miracle, and uh, for Mary to say. See, I told you, he's God, right? Now, what Jesus says is that that time of his unveiling, of of his glory being manifested publicly, is reserved according to the Father's timetable. It's not reserved according to Mary's timetable, right? So... The idea, my hour has not yet come, this refers to Jesus' death and glorification through the crucifixion and ultimate resurrection, when Jesus is going to be revealed as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, we're going to see this concept of, of my hour has not yet come. John develops it throughout the Gospels, we'll see it. In John chapter 7 and 8 and 11 and 12 and 13, we'll see it again in in John chapter 17. And uh, and so that's the idea. So Jesus is saying, Mom, you don't call the shots. My Father in heaven does. I'm going to take my marching orders from Him according to His timeline. Now, here's another point of application for us today. Listen, who God calls you to be. And, and we, got, we got a glimpse of that last week with Peter, right? That, that he had called him, you're going to be a rock. You're not going to be unstable as water in me. I've called you to be a specific person, right? Mm-hmm. And what God calls you to do, again, Jesus with Peter called him to a very specific thing. He's called you to a very specific thing. He's given you a new name in Christ. And he, and he has a calling on your life. And so, who God calls you to be and what God calls you to do are very important, but equally important is when God calls you to do it. You know, sometimes we get a sense of what God wants to do, and so often, we can jump out ahead of God. I think of Moses in the Old Testament. Here's a guy, he, he's born a Hebrew, right, through the circumstances of, of the story there, um, his, his mom, sets him adrift in a in little boat and is watching very attentively because she doesn't want him to be killed as all the other Hebrew babies are being killed, as has been ordered. And Pharaoh's daughter sees this little baby in this little reed boat. She takes him up. She raises him as her own. He's being groomed to really ultimately be the prince of Egypt, right? <clears throat> and so here, here this guy is being groomed, and, but he gets a sense of what it is that God has called him to be and to do. And so, you know, he sees one of his Hebrew brethren being mistreated. I'll read it to you. Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. It says, Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and he looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren, and so he looked this way and that, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and he hid him in the sand. So again, Moses gets a sense of who he's called to be, what he's called to do, but he totally misses God's timing. Takes it into his own hands, says, Hey, I'm gonna, I'm, this guy can't mistreat my Hebrew brother. They need to be freed from this. So he kills the guy. And now, Sheriff's after him, right? You're in trouble, and so they're, they're seeking to, to really kill him for what he's done. So Moses has to bail, he and, and, and he has to hide. And Acts chapter 7 tells us that he went out into the desert in Midian, and it wasn't until 40 years later that God had called him to do what he had a sense 40 years earlier that God was calling him to do. He just missed God's timing. And so the application for us today, maybe you've got a sense of, of who God's called you to be, what God has called you to do, and you've got a burden for it, and my caution would be to make sure you wait for the timing of God. You, you, you have to make sure that, that you're operating in His timing, not, not your timing, not somebody else's time frame that they've put on to you. Just this last week, I had a conversation with a young man who you can see God's hand on. You know he's going to be a senior pastor in, in the future. And, and he's recently had these opportunities that have come to him, several opportunities that have come to him. And he is prayerfully wading through these different opportunities, and one of them is to go out and plant a church. And he he basically, candidly said to me, hey, it's, it's not the right time for me to do that. I'm not ready to do that. And I was so impressed by what he said. And and, you know, number one, I said, hey, pay attention to that, and you, and you do well. That's very wise of you to recognize. But number two, the fact that you recognize that tells me you're closer to doing that than even you might imagine. But what is this young man doing? He's exercising the exact principle here. I'm not going to operate according to my timeline. I'm, I'm going to prayerfully seek the Lord and what his timeline is for me. And so now here in verse 5, Mary gets the memo, right, and, uh, and his mother answers, she says to the servants, hey, whatever he tells you to do, you do it, right? Uh, good advice. Warren Wiersbe, he said this. He says, Mary's words to the servants reveal that she was willing to let her son do whatever he pleased and that she trusted him to do what was right. You see, so often you and me, when we come to God, we are very insistent, on what we want him to do aren't we we can be very particular in our prayers i think about peter in acts chapter 1 he gets a sense of hey you know judas betrayed the lord and, and went out and hung himself and uh, and so we're one short we need we need another uh, apostle we need we we need to find who this guy is and so they uh, they you know seek from among them they come up with two candidates and they present them to the lord and they said hey you know, which one of these two, God, have you chosen? And, uh, and God's sitting up in heaven going, I haven't chosen either one of them. Right? Who was God's choice? It was the guy who was killing Christians at that precise moment. It was the Apostle Paul. Right? And they never would have chosen him. They said, hey, we got it all worked out for you, God. All you, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's door number one or it's door number two. And the Lord's saying, look, I'm, I'm taking the curtain. You know, that you haven't, so I want what's behind the curtain right now. It's 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 Paul. See, they they never would have gotten that. And so often that's the way that we are with God. That, that we're very insistent on what we want Him to do. Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, When you pray, don't babble on and on as people of other religions do. Uh, they think that it, their prayers are answered by merely repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them. For your Father knows exactly what you need, even before you ask him. Right? And that doesn't mean we shouldn't pray. What it means is we should do what Mary here does here and she just simply yields and says, "Hey, just do whatever he tells you to do." Right? This is the way she leaves it. But it's clear that she anticipates he's going to do something, right? So she says, "Do whatever he says." Uh, Verse 6, now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water and they filled them up to the brim. And now he says to them, hey, draw some of the water out, take it to the master of the feast. And they do that. And uh, the master of the feast tastes it. and He doesn't have a clue where it came from. The servants know. He doesn't know. But he tastes it. He's like, oh my gosh, this is like. The good stuff right and he, he goes to, uh, to the bridegroom and uh, has a chat with him and verse 11 says that this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and it manifested his glory and his disciples believed uh, in him here's the question for us Mary anticipated correctly that Jesus was going to do something right the question is why right why? What's the significance of Jesus doing this miracle at the beginning of his ministry? And the obvious question here is it kind of seemed in Jesus' response that he wasn't going to do anything. He made a point of saying, look, my hour has not yet come. Well, you know, what, what's your concern got to do with me? So why did he go ahead and do it? Um, well, first of all, let me just address that: that that uh, it seems like he wasn't gonna do something that he did what he wasn't going to do was make a big public show of it. What he wasn't going to do was reveal himself and all of his glory as as the Messiah, right? So often when Jesus would perform a miracle, he'd tell people, "Don't, don't, don't go out and tell anybody, right? Why? Because he wasn't ready to reveal himself as the Messiah. And so in this instance, again, the only people that got to see what Jesus did was a select group of people. It wasn't a big public unveiling. Um, as well, what's the significance of Jesus doing this as his first, uh, as his first miracle? Uh, this becomes the, the, the essence of our focus for the remainder of our time here today. First of all, you need to understand verse 11. What verse 11 says is that this miracle served as the beginning of signs, right? John's gospel focuses on seven miracles that Jesus did. He did a lot more miracles than that. The other Gospels talk about a lot more miracles that he did. Um, and uh, and Luke makes a point in the book of Acts to say that that he did so many things that there, there wouldn't be enough room in the entire world to contain all the volumes of books to reveal what Jesus did. But John only focuses on seven of the miracles. Each one serves as a sign to point to Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And um, The purpose of a sign is to direct you, right? You encountered all kinds of signs coming in here. There's a sign out front. Tells people how to get to our website. Tells people what our service times are. Uh, signs as you come in, tell, talking to you about your responsibilities where, you know, the, the stupid coronavirus is concerned and the steps that we need to take, you know. You see signs directing you to the restroom. You see signs uh, directing you to, you know, the nursing mom's room or whatever it is, right? There's, there's these various signs that we have. And, uh, and th- this miracle in Cana is no different. It's a sign, right? And what it did is it served as a sign to strengthen the faith of Jesus' disciples. You see in verse 11 that it, it concludes by saying his disciples believed in him. Now, this doesn't mean that the, the, the disciples, the followers of Jesus who accompanied him to this wedding, didn't already to believe in him. What it means is that uh, they were strengthened in their faith. By, by this miracle that they got to behold, that they got to see. And I don't know, in, in your walk, maybe you've experienced times where God has moved and worked miraculously, and it serves to strengthen your faith. Just this week, we went down to the Temecula Police Department. And uh, we as a church, you uh, as, as faithful givers were, were part of this gift, but we bought lunch for the entire department. We had like 160 employees there down there at the at the police station. And we just wanted to bless them, and so so we brought them lunch, and we brought them you know a little gift bag, and and uh, Anne who, who who works here and has a, a baking business, she made all these little special you know Im, Im, I don't I was gonna say embroider you don't embroider a cookie but whatever she had the 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 you know the hey you know we support you we love you kind of thing on the on the the, the cookies, so we got to bless them. It was it was such a, a, an awesome event, but. In the context of of doing that, we're we're having a a few of us as we were leaving, uh, we're having this conversation with a sergeant there. And the sergeant was telling us just how overwhelmed they've been with the outpouring of love from the people of Temecula, how supportive and encouraging that that the, the community has been to them. And this sergeant said that they had a couple of, Gals had come down a few days before we came there, and they came there, and they said, we, can we, we just come to pray for you? And, uh, and so in the course of praying for this, for this gal, this sergeant, she said, this person, she's retelling the story to us in, in awe. She says, this person prayed for me, prayed for us things that they could not have known. They prayed for us things that were so specific and this wasn't her words, but, you know, just such a bullseye as to what was going on in their life. And it, and it had a profound effect on this gal. And what she was experiencing, she didn't know it, but 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about how supernaturally that we can receive from God a word of knowledge, that we can be in a situation like that. I have no clue about this person's life. But the God who's empowering me and the Holy Spirit who's directing me to pray can direct me and give to me a word of knowledge in in the context of my prayer. And that's what she had experienced. And it had a strengthening effect on this gal. I had another experience like this. Very early on in our first church plant, we were praying in in a, a home Bible study at my house. And my neighbor just, you know, four or five doors down, across the street and down, he had gone in for a simple surgery, and in the, con- in the course of the surgery, he threw an embolus, a, 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 a blood clot, actually, and it went to his brain. And he ended up being brain dead. They did an EEG on him, which is a, a brain scan, and it was flat. And there ain't no coming back from that in the natural. And we prayed for this guy God ended up healing him. He walked out of the hospital with no, with no detriments whatsoever. It was to the point where they were saying, well, it must have been a faulty test, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. And we're like, no, it wasn't no faulty test. It's, it, it's, a, it's a loving God who, who works miracles. Man, can I tell you what that did to our faith? It strengthened it. It strengthened our faith incredibly. Hey, we serve a miracle-working God. He does miracles even to today. And so this this served as a sign to strengthen the faith of, uh, of his disciples. And as well, this first sign that Jesus performed, it was highly symbolic. Several ways that this sign was symbolic. First of all, the occasion was symbolic in that a wedding feast has very great significance, right? Jesus, his earthly ministry begins here, At a wedding feast, right? He will conclude it, as far as the church is concerned, with another wedding feast in heaven, right? At the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19:9 tells us, "Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb." Uh, Matthew chapter 8 verse 11, Jesus says, "I tell you this, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world, from east and west, and they will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the wedding feast." in the kingdom of heaven. And and so the occasion was symbolic. The timing of this miracle was symbolic. See, according to to, uh, verse 1, this miracle happened on the third day, right? Happened on the third day, the three days since the calling of Nathanael. But John here is hinting at the idea that Jesus will show forth his glory when his hour does come, right? on the third day, when He rises from the dead. And that just as revealing His glory here in Cana strengthened the disciples' belief, the revealing of His glory on the third day when He rose from the grave, it solidified their belief in Him. I mean, even to the point where Jesus was going to the cross, His disciples denied Him and they ran from Him and abandoned Him. But... After Jesus rose from the dead, every single one of them, with the exception of John, they all suffered martyrs' deaths. uh, Peter, according to church history, uh, who denied the Lord at one time and fled from the cross, he ended up boldly proclaiming Jesus, preaching boldly on the day of Pentecost, and he would ultimately, according to church history, be crucified for his faith, but he said, if you're going to crucify me, you can't crucify me as Jesus was crucified. Crucify me upside down. And that's how Peter died. Now, people don't die for a lie. They saw a miracle, and they said, this is the truth. I'll give my life to to my Lord, my Savior. And so the timing was symbolic. And listen, in conclusion, the elements were symbolic. There's three elements that are in focus in this story. There's the water pots, there's the wine, and there's the servants. Jesus tells us that the water pots, here the text tells us that the water pots were used in purification ceremonies, right? Vessels used for purification. And they understand that the Jews, they practiced ritual cleaning in the context of their worship. The idea was that they had to cleanse themselves before coming into the presence of God. And this points to the old covenant, right? This points to the practices under the law. And and Galatians chapter 3 talks about this. I shared this with you, I think, last week or the week before But it tells us there in Galatians 3, verses 23 through 25, that before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. This is what Paul said to the Galatians. You see, under the Old Testament, the sacrifices and the ceremonial cleaning uh, it, it served to point people to their need for a perfect cleansing. It served to point people to the Messiah and their need for the Messiah, right? And the ritualistic cleansing, it was imperfect. And so the first thing that Jesus says here is, hey, fill the pots. And here's the implication. The implication is that the water pots were empty, right? And, the, and, and then there's six water pots, right? Six is the number of man in the Bible, and you put that together, and the idea is, is that we are empty vessels, right? And that we need to be filled. And and the 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 the, the even when they, they were vessels that were filled and used for ceremonial cleaning, it was an imperfect thing. And so the symbolism points to what Jesus does here. He instructs the servants to fill those empty empty pots those empty vessels with water. And this is a sign pointing you and me to our need to be filled with the water of the Word and with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and, and in, in the Greek, that, that phrase, be filled with the Holy Spirit, it, it literally means be being filled, active, ongoing, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because because you leak, right? Your, your, your water pot goes empty. You need active, ongoing filling of the Holy Spirit. Another key element here is wine. Uh, wine traditionally was a rabbinical symbol of joy as the fruit of the vine. And Jesus, having this be his first miracle here at Cana, he turns water into wine and what he's showing is the gladness and the joy of his new work. This is what what is being revealed here. The symbolism is, is that Jesus takes you and me, and he takes us as empty vessels, and then as we are filled with the water of the word and with the Holy Spirit, he then turns that water into fruit, and it becomes, worth manifesting the fruit of the vine. Jesus says this in John chapter 15, verses 5 through 8, I'm the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch is withered, and they gather them and they throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so you will be my disciples." See, in the Old Testament, under the law, Moses turned water into blood, and it shows us that the law results in death. But in the New Testament, Jesus turns water into wine, and he's acting out what uh, John said in, in chapter 1 in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Let's wrap it up with this. There's the final key element in focus here, and that's the servants. The servants are in focus. Who got to see the miracle, guys? Servants got to see the miracle. The servants were the ones that got to see the miracle. But look, it was dependent on what Mary had said to them. What did Mary say to them? Verse 5, whatever he says to you, do it. Do whatever he tells you to do. And don't miss how they responded there in verse 7. Jesus tells them to fill the water pots with water. And what do they do? It says they filled them up to the brim. Guys, Jesus only transformed what the servants presented to him. They could have, in unbelief, said, what is this clown doing? And they could have brought him, you know, a cup of water that they would have put in this 30-gallon vessel. And what would Jesus have done? He would have turned a cup of water into to wine. But they said, we're going to fill this up to the brim. And the result was they got six water pots filled and and transformed by Jesus. Jesus doesn't need the servants, by the way, to do this. He could have just created wine out of thin air and filled them up. Jesus has created. This is the system that God has instituted, that he works through willing vessels. That's what he does. He works through willing vessels. And so, so we, we have to be that willing vessel. Peter, you know, in, in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus had him launch out from the shore and, and ultimately let down his nets for the catch, that's what Jesus told him, let down your nets for the catch. And Peter's response, okay, Lord, I'll let down the net, right? He, he, he's doubtful. So he half-heartedly obeys the Lord. Now, the Lord ended up blessing. But listen, we need to understand that our responsiveness to the Lord is that we might be filled so that he could transform whatever we're filling our vessel with, that, that he might transform that into fruitfulness. Three questions as we close today. and to put them on the screen. They'll be on the screen after the service. So if you don't uh, write as fast as I talk, don't worry. They'll still be up here after the service is, is done. Uh, Number one, what keeps you from filling your water pot to the brim? What is it? Take a walk with it this week, you know, like Peter. Okay, I'll let down the net, you know. What is it that keeps you from filling your water pot to the brim? Number two, are you living on God's timeline or are you living on your own timeline or the timeline of someone else? What timeline are you living according to? And thirdly, do you have healthy boundaries that you've established in your relationships?